Welcome to But Jesus Drank Wine and other stories that kept us stuck. I'm Mead. And I'm Christy. In this podcast, we'll explore the stories that kept us, well, stuck, wanting to drink and not wanting to drink all at the same time. Join us as we show you that freedom from alcohol does not have to mean a life sentence of misery and missing out, but actually means living an authentic life full of peace, joy, and purpose. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. Good morning. We are so excited to have Kristen McAvoy, founder of the Sober Girl Tribe. So I found Kristen on Instagram because not only is she beautiful, but she has an adorable dog that looks similar to mine. And she loves Jesus and she's a sober sister. So we connected and we're so excited to have her. She works full time for a digital advertising agency in Virginia. She has a mini golden doodle named Maggie, who's so cute. And um, we're going to talk about her her story of freedom today and dual addiction from out to, from alcohol and Xanax, which is we haven't ever talked to someone that's struggled with both of those. So that will also be just good good for our listeners to hear. So yeah, so we, let us know kind of where it all started for you and and how you got stuck and how then we'll kind of like parlay into how you got free and everything in between. But we'd love to hear your story. Okay, yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. I started out with, it was just alcohol for me. So for about a decade, I struggled with addiction to alcohol. And then later down the road came the Xanax. But much my addiction started in college. I joined a sorority and I just kind of wanted to be like this party girl. I guess I, in like high school, you know, I grew up pretty reserved in a Christian household. And when I went to college, I just kind of felt like I was finding this freedom. And I was kind of like, I just took it and kind of went wild in a way and was kind of rebelling. And I started drinking like every single day. The only day I really wouldn't drink was on Mondays, (laughs) but it was just going to parties every night, over drinking, blacking out. I would always black out drinking too much vodka or wine. And I really was trying to mask my anxiety. So I had really bad social anxiety and just anxiety in general. And when I discovered alcohol, it kind of just wiped all of those fears away from me. It took away those anxious thoughts. And when I would go into social settings, I would always overdrink because I would just want to keep that anxious feeling away. So I just kept like feeling like I needed more and more. And it was pretty socially accepted in college. And so I think that's how I kind of slid under the radar those four years just over drinking. My actions were completely out of control. You know, I almost got kicked out of college. And I did have consequences for all of that, but it still was never enough for me to be like, oh, I want to stop drinking or I should cut back. Like, I would be upset about my actions maybe for a day. And then the next night I'd be on to, you know, blacking out again. (laughs) And that went on my entire college career. I I almost got kicked out. There was like a three-strike policy and I basically had three strikes and I had to like write a letter to the dean to stay in college. But I somehow graduated and 
I had kind of forgotten about my anxiety those four years because I was just masking it with alcohol every day. And so when I like got into the real world, my anxiety just totally spiked. I felt so lost. And when I started working full time, I just was so stressed out all the time because I didn't like I couldn't drink at work. That wasn't something I wanted to do. And so I just felt kind of helpless because I was experiencing this extreme anxiety in the workplace. And then for years, I was in this habit of getting off work, wanting to just numb out the anxiety and the stress. And as soon as I got off, I would drive to the store, pick up a bottle or two of wine because after college, wine was like my thing I was struggling with really bad. So I'd pick up a bottle of wine. And at that point, I still drink um, like socially, but I really started to prefer drinking alone, like after work without others, because then I was like, oh, if I, you know, blackout or make a mistake, nobody will be there to know or tell me to drink less. So I really, at that point, preferred to drink alone. And it was just years of drinking too much wine, waking up so hungover, not remembering, you know, throwing up so much before work. But I was pretty high functioning. So even though I was like throwing up multiple times a week before work, I would still make it in every day. It was kind of, I told myself, like, since I'm doing this to myself, you know, my punishment is like, I have to show up to work every day. And it was like, so exhausting because it was like I was putting on a show like I would still do my hair, dress up, look professional, try to be performing at work. And I looking back now, I have no idea how I did that. Like so sleep deprived, so hungover. I was just getting by basically. And I just couldn't see a lifestyle outside of that. I just relied on it so much that I would just go through those consequences of being sick all the time. And even when I was making big mistakes, I just still didn't want to stop. But then it kind of got to a point where I felt like the alcohol wasn't enough because I couldn't drink at work. And so I had been working with my doctor for a long time on my anxiety. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm having this debilitating anxiety at work. I would have panic attacks where I would be, like, shaking and sweating and breaking out in hives and, like, like a full-blown panic attack. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to get through this. And so as a last resort, she prescribed me to Xanax. And, you know, she warned me that it was addictive and that I should take it as prescribed, like, if I was having a panic attack. And so for a while, I like listened to that advice. I think for about six months, like I didn't abuse it. I just took it as I was supposed to. And I thought it was helping. But I also feel like I thought I found like this magic pill that erased my anxiety. And so I immediately had a problem with it. I just didn't, I had no idea what it was going to turn into. Like six months down the road, I thought it was helping. And then I found myself in a place where I was going through more stress and it was just like the perfect storm. Like I knew I had this bottle with me. And so I started kind of just being in a state of desperation where I was so anxious. And so I was just taking, I started taking more, like taking it more times a week. And then it turned into me wanting it more. And even 
in the very beginning when I was on a very low dosage, I like started having withdrawal symptoms without it. But I was so desperate that I just ignored all of those red flags. And over a two-year time span, it just turned into something I never could imagine. Like I was an entirely different person. I became obsessed with the pills. Like the moment I woke up, that's all I was thinking about. I started running out of my prescription. Like I would run out two weeks early and be completely screwed, like trying to call the pharmacy to get it early and I couldn't. And like going through calling my doctor in a panic, going through really bad withdrawal symptoms um, where I'd just be like sweating and shaking and like jolting out of my skin, which I later learned I was like about to have a seizure and kind of the medicine, it was kind of like alcohol. Like I, over that two years, I just built a tolerance up to it and I started needing more and needing a higher dosage and I couldn't get that same feeling. Like I just kept chasing that feeling I had in the beginning and I couldn't get it. And so I would just take more and more. And then I was also drinking wine on top of it, which is like extremely dangerous. And there would be nights when I would run out and I'd be going through withdrawal. And I like thought I was going to die in my sleep. And I was so scared that because I lived alone at the time, which was really bad for me because I could be so sneaky with all of this. And I would be so scared that I was going to die from Xanax withdrawal that I would like go to my parents and sleep. And I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't tell them like, that's why I was visiting. But I was terrified. But even through all of that, like, I still didn't want to stop. Like, it was like I was so addicted that I was willing to, like, risk dying just to keep going because I was masking the symptoms. And so when I didn't have the Xanax, it was making my anxiety, like, twice as worse. And so it felt, like, unbearable when I didn't have it. I think that was kind of when I started being like not functioning anymore. Like people were starting to notice. My friends were starting to notice my personality really changing. My parents could tell like anytime I was on it. My friends actually ended up being the ones telling my parents like, hey, I think like you need to go over to Kristen's house. Like I would get on like my old Instagram and do stories when I was like messed up. And so they called my parents and they were like, hey, I think you need to get over there now. I remember my dad, like, I could hear him running up the stairs, running into my apartment. Like, he said he, like, thought he was going to find me dead. And it was him, my mom, and my sister. And they, like, knew how bad things were getting. So they were like, we have called around, and we got you into a rehab in Florida. And we really want you to go. Um, They were really encouraging about it. And, like, at the time... I didn't really want to be sober. Like, I didn't want to give up Xanax or alcohol, but I kind of felt stuck. Like, I knew I I had just ran out of Xanax, so I knew I was going to be, like, screwed and going through withdrawals, and I knew I didn't really have another choice. And so I, w- I just agreed to go. When I went, I, like, drank on the plane the whole time there. And when I got there, I was there for about 25 days, and I just— I didn't really take it seriously. And I think it was because I knew my parents were only making me go really because of the Xanax. And so the entire time, I just had the mindset of, I'm still going to drink wine and I'll just stop the Xanax. And so I really didn't have like sobriety even on my mind. I was feeling 
like really emotional and I was trying to just replace it with like rehab romance and just all the wrong things. I didn't listen to anybody's advice. I was in a job that was not good for me at the time and all the therapists were telling me to leave and I just didn't listen to anybody. And when I got back, I felt even more like depressed because I had no tools. I didn't really know how to go to a meeting. And then all the people I had met were in Florida. So I felt even more alone because I was like missing those connections. Like as soon as I got out of rehab, I ordered wine at the airport. Like I just was still not really in the mindset of sobriety. And within like a week, I refilled my Xanax prescription because I was just dreading going back to work. And I was like, this is so embarrassing. Like I went to rehab and now I'm going to try to go back to work. And I just couldn't, I had no tools to handle like the stress of that. And I left that communication open with my doctor so that I could refill it. And I went down like an even darker path. Those, it was a couple days of me just like taking so much Xanax, drinking even more wine. And then that rehab romance thing that just like was awful and that ended and that's when I just like really lost it and I like turned off my phone went out was not responding to anyone like just left in the middle of a work day and my parents were out looking for me for like hours and I didn't know that they had like called the police and they were looking for me I had just gone to a restaurant and was getting hammered like by myself in the middle of the work day. And I was already had taken a bunch of Xanax. And I remember leaving and I didn't like have my car with me. And so I just got these two men pulled up and I just got in the car with them. And like they gave me alcohol and Molly. And the scary thing is I for 10 years, like for literally 10 years, put myself in situations like that, like all the time. I just had no like self-love and I did not care what I didn't really care what happened to me and I got in the car with them and they were going to drive me home like gave them my address like I just I would do things like this all the time and that's why I think I'm like God was really with me during this entire time because I mean I have woken up in the middle of the street like sleeping like just so many there's been so many times where I should have been like dead and I somehow made it out alive and I just knew that like God was with me that whole time and so then those men like drove me to my house and my parents were still looking for me with the police and I guess the police were like okay let's maybe go to this area and look for her and my mom said she just had this gut feeling like no like let's wait at her apartment for like 10 more minutes and she said she saw me pull in in this car that looked like really out of place. And she said, like, to, she said to my dad, Bobby, like, I think that's a girl in the back of the car. And so they pulled up and they were so upset. And those men left like immediately. And I'm just like, that was such a God moment too, that my mom had that gut feeling like to stay and wait. And so they got me, we went back to their house and they were like, we are, we've got you scheduled to like go live in a recovery house here in Richmond. Like you're going to go tomorrow. And that night when my parents went to bed, I was like searching their house for wine. And my mom used to always hide her alcohol 
when I came to the house, which was terrible. And I found it. And I remember I just drank all night. And then the next morning, like I, before we went to the recovery house, I was, I got like messed up before that. Luckily, like that recovery house, like saved my life. Like it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I mean, when I went, I was so upset. Like after day two, I was like crying, begging for my dad to come get me. But I like needed that structure and discipline to get sober. I I know I never would have done it on my own. And it was almost like a blessing in disguise that the Xanax thing happened because I don't I don't know how long I I think I would have still kept drinking like for forever or like a very long time if the Xanax thing didn't happen. But so I lived in this recovery house with like it was 10 or 12 other women. And it was it like became so amazing because every day they would take us to meetings and we would really just focus on working on ourselves and we would do groups and we would share stories and we would uplift, uplift each other. And they would take us to a church that they had like within their organization. I got a therapist and a recovery coach. And it was just, I just felt like I could disconnect from everything, which I'm so lucky that I was able to do that. And my dad, like that second day I was in there, he called me and he was like, I put your resignation in at your job. Like, you no longer have to be there anymore. I already picked your stuff up. And that was like the biggest relief because that was like a huge trigger for me. So I felt like I could finally just focus on healing and not deal with like any of that. And it just changed my life. Like I met other sober women and heard so many stories of hope during meetings. And the during the meetings, that was like the first time I really wanted to be sober for myself because I had never really met any other people who were going through what I was like. I felt so alone during my addiction because I feel like all my friends were just like kind of thriving. Like they were getting married. They were having babies. They were buying their dream homes. And I just was in this like self-pity party all the time, like praying to God that I would have that and I would find someone. And none of the dreams ever came true because every morning I chose Xanax and alcohol over God. And I would, during all this, like I would try to be involved in church. Like I would take Xanax and go to church. I would take Xanax before Bible study, even drink some before. I would do volunteering on Xanax. Like I didn't tell anybody. Like I was just struggling with this on the inside. And then from the outside, I was trying to look like I was still you know, doing things for people in need. And I would post about it, but really I would be on Xanax. Like it was like I was living this double life. And unless you knew me well, like I was just trying to make it all look perfect on the outside. And I'm just so lucky that like my parents never gave up on me and that I was able to go to that recovery house. And I stayed there for 28 days. And when I got out, I just took things really slow. Like I listened to everyone's advice. I went to a meeting like every single day for 90 days. I stayed connected with other sober women I had met and I would pick up like newcomers and take them to meetings. And then one of my sober friends from the recovery house at the time, her dad was a preacher at a church and he was also sober. And so I was battling with like a lot of shame and guilt when I got sober 
of things I did that were so out of character that I never would have done sober. And it was just taking over me. Like I would literally drop to my knees sobbing, like just in disbelief that I even did this. And I was just like, how can I be forgiven for this? It was like I couldn't forgive myself. Like after a service, I told the preacher like what I had done, what I was, this shame and guilt I was experiencing. And he was just like, he prayed over me and he was like, you're forgiven. Like Jesus forgives you. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And I just felt like the shame and guilt just like wash away. And then I was like starting new. And like, I had believed in God my whole life, but I feel like through my addiction, it really, even when I was not being a good Christian, I it still like drove me to God so much because I had to rely on Him during those dark times. And after that, I the church service and the, Him praying over me, I just felt like I was able to walk out of there free. And a lot of people ask me, you know, how do you deal with this shame and guilt? And I tell them that story and I'm like, I don't know how, but I seriously just, I haven't felt shame like in guilt like that ever since. Like, I just felt like I knew I was forgiven and that I could move forward and forgive myself. It was just incredible. I feel like God plays such a big role in my recovery now because I still have pretty bad anxiety. And like, that is what I rely on, like looking up Bible verses for anxiety, praying my devotionals, like that is what gets me through that when I'm not relying on a substance. And it obviously works so much better than drinking or taking Xanax. But yeah, after I just really, I tried to focus on myself. I took things really slow and I knew, I knew the corporate world was a big trigger for me. And so I was like, I'm just going to get a part-time job that is low stress for me for like six months and just focus on meetings, focus on myself, like focus on learning new coping skills. And it just, it really worked. Like I didn't go back to corporate until like six months where I felt like, okay, I feel like I have tools now that I can like stay sober. And I mean, there have been hard times, but again, just relying on my faith and the sober community has been just life-changing. And I feel like as the longer you keep staying sober, you learn more and more tools. And everybody kept telling me like in meetings, just, you know, like keep waiting, like keep staying sober and the miracles are going to happen. And at first, you know, when you're newly sober, I just thought it was silly because, I mean, I remember in my first meeting, like sobbing and saying like, I did not want to be here. Like I was feeling really suicidal. And then by the end of it, like they were right. It was like month after month, everything that I had been like praying for in addiction started to come true. Like at nine months, I started dating again and ended up meeting like my partner that I'd been with for over two years. And it was like the first healthy relationship I've ever been in. And that's because I was so much more clear-headed on what I wanted and the values I wanted in someone. Whereas when I was drinking, I didn't have self-respect. I just picked like the worst men because I was just like this mask masked by alcohol. And so when that went away, I was able to find like a good Christian man like I always wanted. And then we got a puppy and 
I got into a job that wasn't bad for me. Like my previous one was that I had been like praying for. And it was just like month after month, more and more blessings kept happening. And now like next month, it'll be three years. And just thinking about all the things I've been able to do, like I have gone on the news and shared my story. And when I was drinking, I never would have been able to do that. Like I would have anything that made me nervous, I would just drink and avoid. And now it's like, I've been able to realize all I can do like sober. And it's just been, it's just been an incredible journey. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what to, to say because I'm just like in awe of you, Kristen, honestly, because mm-hmm. I followed you for a long time. And like, I want to, I want to circle back to that and like, you know, building up this amazing following where you encourage people like all the time. But like actually hearing your story is just so incredibly moving and we really appreciate. And I, what I really want to say is your parents are probably so incredibly proud of you. And yeah, so thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I echo all of that. And I, I was thinking, Christy, like how many of your clients do you hear in parts of Kristen's story? I, I think we've had a lot of stories and guests and we hear from listeners that it's their stories are relatable. And I can think of like off the top of my head immediately, like 10 clients I have that have that can just so relate to what you share. There's so many little pieces. And, you know, one of the things that kind of like stands out to me because I see these like themes. So even though, and we talk about this on the podcast a lot, that even though there are, I mean, there are all these different methods for finding freedom from alcohol or whatever, you know, whatever you're stuck in, we go the no, we talk about the non traditional kind of programs or, or methods. But there are different ways of doing this. And the more stories I hear of the different ways people do it, the more I also just see these common themes. And so that's why it's so important to try like different things for people who are saying, okay, well, I've tried that and that hasn't worked or whatever. What I I think stands out the most to me is what when you talk to the preacher after church, that shame and that blame that you were kind of carrying that was that was adding to that stuck. One of my teachers says like the word confession really means truth. And like when we bring the truth to the light, like it doesn't have that power over us anymore. And I just see, like, I can't help but just be so in awe of how great God is and how he used that preacher to help you in that moment. And I think that's something that you mentioned community too, and and being with those women in the the, uh, recovery house. And Mm -hmm. And that power of like being honest and being truthful and living not from that mask like you were before mm-hmm. in the work world, gosh, like not having to perform and and just showing up freely. Like I, there's there's just so much beauty in that. And that's what immediately comes out in what you share of your story. And so I'm so, so grateful for that. Yeah, I feel like the community piece is so huge because I remember when I got sober, I w- I like wanted to start my Sober Girl Tribe account because I had felt so alone and there was only one other woman that I used to work with who was on Instagram and she was talking about her struggle with alcohol. And it was like my only hope. Like I remember I would even Mm. separate, she would do like lives and I was in full-blown addiction and I would try to be just like a little bit sober so that I could listen to it. Mm. And it was like the only hope I had because I knew nobody who was mm-hmm. going through what I was. And so I was like, you know, 
that helped me so much. So when I, if I get through this, like I want to be able to do that for somebody else and be like that tiny bit of hope. And I think it's almost just knowing there's someone out there that can relate to you and know Mm -hmm. how hard it is. And like the number one thing people really contact me about is how are you, how are you dealing with your anxiety? And it just made me realize like so many people are using alcohol or Xanax or whatever it is to mask anxiety. And it's kind of like in our heads, we believe it's this sure like to, okay, if you go to a social event, just drink alcohol and it will calm your nerves. But it's such a trap because then when you don't have it, it, it leaves you with zero coping skills. It makes your anxiety like twice as worse because you don't have if you don't have the alcohol or Xanax and like it keeps you stuck like you don't feel like you need to seek help because you're just using that and so I stayed stuck for years like not getting into the right kind of therapy and just using it to mask and I remember especially with the Xanax when I had stopped it having this moment where I was like wow, I'm literally in the exact same place I was with my anxiety. Like, it's literally horrible, like, years later. And I thought I was solving it, and I was just totally covering it up. Like, it wasn't going anywhere, and the substance is just, like, they're not, it's not true that the alcohol helps us at all. Maybe in that moment, but in the long run, it's just making it so much worse. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to, like, how informed your doctor was a, like a like around like how much you were drinking and then when you came back from rehab the first time and you still were able to fill your prescription like that all seems bananas to me that you were and maybe this is just because this is how easy it is to access like yeah so like, she didn't know she had no idea that I struggled with alcohol addiction like because I would come off very polished and yeah. when I'm taking Xanax I became very manipulative which was not ever a characteristic of mine, but I just wanted it so bad that I would just do anything to get it. I would act like I had it under control and that I could take these small doses and that I was doing better. Like, so she was kind of in the dark about, like she, people would act, like a doctor would ask me how much I drink. I would totally lie. So yeah. 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 I mean, that's I think I figured and we all did that. Right. We all became super manipulative and weren't telling the Mm -hmm. truth. So like obviously Mm -hmm. zero judgment. But yeah, I mean, and it goes back to what Mean was saying about the moment with the preacher, which is I just love so much. And it's the reason that I feel like and Mead and I have talked a lot about this offline is the more years that we do this work where it's harder and harder for us to like, like tell our alcohol free freedom stories without talking about Jesus because of the shame piece. Right. Because. Mm -hmm. How do you explain someone that doesn't know the peace of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of Christ, like what it feels like to actually have that like shame just actually evaporate, right? You can say, and this is what I've said to like non-believing clients, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, shame keeps you stuck. There's really no good reason to hang off. <laughs> but there's no way to surprise me. Like, you, yes. there's no way to like explain like, no, 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 there can be actual total and complete freedom from this. And in conversation, people saying, well, it's been three or four years for me and I'm still feeling the shame. And I, I, I like don't know what to say at that point after sharing it because I'm like, I don't know how to explain this, but it just, it, it just washes away. And I feel like that is where people really get stuck because 
if they don't have Jesus and let go of that shame, then they're just living in that shame every day and the guilt and they're replaying the things they did in their head. And I feel like that's such a trap to go right back to drinking because of that shame. And you're like, how do I get past what I did? And I, I think that's where people can really get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I also loved the way that you framed the the Xanax needed to happen in order for you to look at your relationship with alcohol and Xanax, obviously. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of things that we are, we're ashamed of, like, at least for me, I know needed to happen in order for me to get to the point where I was like, okay, I really seriously need to take a look at what's going on here. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, instead of saying like, this was a horrible thing, it was all meant to happen and it got you to the place. And so in a way, you know, you can be thankful for your exact journey, right? Which is what we think we try to tell people we talk to a lot, like when we're talking about like let, letting go of shame and forgiving yourself and asking for forgiveness because all of those things, every single, even the first rehab you went to, you know, like it all needed to happen to get you in that preacher's pew. I'm just putting you in a pew. I don't know if you were in a pew, but <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always try to reframe it that way. Like even now when I'm going through anxiety, I try to be like, okay, this anxiety is a blessing because I'm not, I can't rely on myself. Like I have to rely on God every day. And if I just had no anxiety and could just do all this on my own, like I probably mm -hmm. wouldn't even be a Christian. And so I'm like, I know that I have this anxiety so that I can rely on God every day. Like I know the purpose in it. And that's how I really reframe it when I'm struggling like now and, you know, flipping it into a positive, even though it, it's hard, that help. That's yeah. so beautiful. I love it. Responding to the heartfelt requests from you, our wonderful, wonderful listeners for a deeper sense of community, we are so excited to introduce y'all to the But Jesus Drink Wine community. Get ready to be part of an exclusive experience where you'll join a sisterhood of kindred spirits on a transformative journey of faith, sobriety, and personal growth. You'll gain access to our private community, a place where deep connections can flourish among women who share your aspirations of strengthening faith in Christ and breaking free from alcohol. But wait, there's more. We'll host regular connection calls to facilitate fellowship with like-minded gals, no matter where you stand on your alcohol or faith journey, whether you're seasoned or just curious, you are very warmly welcomed here. Prepare to be inspired by guest expert sessions and engaging Q&As that explore the essential topics for your sobriety, faith, and holistic wellness journey. Don't miss out on securing your spot. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. We can't wait to see your beautiful face in the But Jesus Drank Wine community. I heard you on another podcast talk about um, some of the practical ways that you that has helped your anxiety. I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that because we talk a lot about like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's a huge part of what kept me stuck in that cycle. Is like I I had no tolerance or capacity for discomfort, and discomfort can be like you know downright pain, or it can just be like that unease, that edge, that irritability. Can you speak to to that a little bit? Yeah. So once I was able to get sober and I was like, another, that's another blessing in disguise for anxiety because then I was like, I have to figure this out. Like I have to figure out the right type of help I need. And so I just started like really researching. And so I have anxiety and OCD. And so I was like, I need to find like an OCD specialist who's also going to help my anxiety. And I found a program that has been working for me so well. Like best help I've found since I was 16 years old. And 
I'm in a program doing ERP. So expo- it's exposure therapy. And you're basically exposing yourself to everything that scares you because and the person talks a lot about how we use alcohol as literally like a safety behavior. So like we feel fear and we are taught that anxiety is not normal. Mm. And so we feel we mm-hmm. have to do something to fix it, to make yeah. it okay. And yeah. so you start reaching for alcohol and then you, that's your safety behavior. Anytime you feel it, you're like, oh, this is wrong. Let me do the alcohol or whatever you're taking. And I've really learned that when you feel that anxiety, like it's totally normal. Like you don't have to do anything. All you need to do is feel it. And like the more you feel it, the more your body is going to start getting used to it and learning how to process it. And it's the exposure therapy. It is hard, like because you're having to put yourself in situations that you don't want to be in. And I didn't do this when I first got sober. I do want to say that when I first got sober, I gave myself grace. And like, if I didn't want to go to a social event where there was alcohol, like I didn't go. But then once I got more comfortable, that's when I started doing this exposure therapy. And so it's just doing things that scare me, like going into places where I would normally not go because I have anxiety doing things I would never do, like how I went on the news. Like I was having a full-blown panic attack, but I like still do it. And just the more and more you do it, expose yourself and start kind of reframing it in your mind that anxiety is normal. Like everybody feels anxiety. It's just energy like that. Just really learning to reframe it in your mind and learning coping tools um, is what's really worked for me. And just doing your research and finding the right thing for you, I think is the, the hardest part. But once you finally find that thing, you know, it's, it's so much more beneficial than drinking and all the repercussions that come from that, just to try to not feel this anxiety. I'm reminded of um, the story of like, if you had looked at my Kindle, I don't know if I had a Kindle back then when my babies were little. So maybe like, I don't know, 12 years ago, where they, did they exist? I don't know. Who knows? Anyways, but if you had looked at my like library collection, I was reading it on something Anyway, you would have seen, you would probably have been alarmed by the books that I was reading because they were all about people who have lost children, tragic stories of people who've lost children. And I had this really huge debilitating fear about losing one of my kids. And it was just something I kind of was drawn to these books of people who were, you know, who overcame that, how they handled that. It's like I had to, I had to wrap my mind around what that looked like and my exposure to those stories helped me find that kind of like tolerance or capacity for okay like this is my fear and I can name it and I can say it out loud and so then when I am overwhelmed by those sensations again that you know teach me you know that tell me that I'm afraid of this or whatever I can I can draw upon that you know and 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 build that tolerance to it and so I love that you have that as like a as a, as a tool for getting comfortable, so to speak, with anxiety, it's, it's kind of, it's bringing, it's, I mean, really, it's just bringing it all to the light, right? Like, and not letting it stay isolated and hidden. And I just, oh my gosh, there's so many things I want to, like, so many angles I want to take this, but. Well, one more thing I'll say is it's yeah. really about, like, stopping the action. So, like, stopping the drinking, but then also what you're saying in your mind. So I will like ruminate over things and think of the worst possible situation. And one thing I have learned is like, I have to cut out that ruminating completely. And so when I'm having a thought, 
instead of being like, oh my gosh, what are these people going to think of me? Like, what if I do this? And they think I'm so weird, blah, blah, blah. Like I immediate, immediately am like, yep, maybe, maybe I'll mess up. Maybe they'll think like I am the weirdest person in the world. Like, okay, why, what, why does that matter? And so it's like immediately catching my thought and being like, yep, maybe, maybe it will happen. And like, it takes time just like with learning new coping skills for alcohol, like the more and more you do it, like the more and more you'll gain better coping skills. And over time, like you can learn, you know, to cope without alcohol. It is, but like coming from someone who has like had the most debilitating anxiety, like now I'm doing podcast interviews and doing things that are so out of my comfort zone. And, you know, I just want to tell people that because it is like, it is so possible. You've got your confidence in Christ too. I mean, that, yeah, strengthening you and, and powering you through that, I think is so, is so beautiful. I also heard you say on another podcast that fits with this because I can hear like my clients who are like, they're going to be like, oh, why does she mention this? Yeah, because this is the thing they hate most hearing, I think, is the journaling. Um, you talked about that, how you, when you were in the recovery house, uh, that was something that you, journaling was so important. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So my recovery coach told me to journal everything. She said, okay, you're going to have this negative journal, like the first month where you're just going to write down everything you're feeling every day. And it's probably all going to be negative. And it was, and, but it was so therapeutic. Like I would write down every single thing, every thought I had, everything I was going through, like with the, like the breakup with the Xanax, the alcohol, that romance, like I wrote it all out and got it out on paper. And it helped so much because I know all I would talk about was the pain I was going through 24-7. And so I had trouble, like, even when I had like five minutes of downtime, I was like in my head immediately thinking about Xanax, wishing I had it. And so the journaling really helped me because when I had that downtime, I could do that and it got me out of my head and it got my emotions out like on paper. And then once I finished that journal, I like said a goodbye to everything on the last page. And then we started a positive journal. And so I started at like month two writing down, you know, more positive things that started to happen to me. And like, it is, I'm so glad I did that because it is so cool to read back now. Like in moments I've had where I'm like, feel like I'm kind of struggling, like not that I want to drink, but just that I'm like, this is really hard right now. I'll read that back. And it's so raw and vulnerable. Like, mm. I'm literally writing to myself, like, if you ever think about taking Xanax or alcohol again, like, remember this moment, remember this moment, like, mm -hmm. and it's just cool to look, to have that to look back on now. And then to read the positive one is cool, too, because I write down like, I'm laughing again for the first time, like Love something it. I hadn't like been doing at all when I was, you know, deep into addiction. And it was just, it's really cool. Like I still have them and I like encourage anybody to do that through their journey. I love that so much. I so good. I Yeah, I love the power of getting the thoughts out of our heads. And that's something I try and like entice clients with. It's like for if for nothing else, like there is a lot of power for like clearing that space and getting it out. I love that you started with this negative journal and then kind of switched to a, a positive because it sh it shifts the mind from looking for for lack and what's not there to shifting to the positive and having that reminder. But like that is one of the like the carrots I dangle for people is you're gonna love to look back and see yeah. the difference because if we can't celebrate how much we've grown, if we can't see 
Like you're going to want those reminders. The growth happens in these tiny little moments, just like we give, we give alcohol this tiny little opening. For me, it was in high school as well. Like it's so benign. It's not a big deal. Go to a party school. Everybody's doing it. Yeah. Like so on and so forth. Like we give it this tiny opening. And then, you know, for, for us to be able to like see the, the growth happens over a slow and long period. I mean, that's just the way it is. The easy buttons, alcohol, Xanax, whatever, it doesn't work. But being able to reflect on what those differences are so that you can celebrate them, that's what catapults you further and allows you to keep going and celebrate. I, I just, it's so, yeah, I love, love, love what you share, Kristen. Thank you. So if there is a listener maybe struggling with anxiety, let's say, which I'm sure, I mean, who does it? Who does it? Yeah. Everybody, everybody has anxiety, but yeah, we get your but point. What was, what would you say? What would you say to them? So for me, Again, what helped me the most was finding the right therapy, just doing research on that. There's so many like free podcasts now on anxiety, like start looking up what type of anxiety you have and you will literally come across a free podcast, then researching just like therapy programs online and then just getting curious about Jesus if you aren't already. Like Mm -hmm. on days I'm having really bad anxiety, I get, get a devotional and start with that and then look up verses, just literally Google verses for anxiety. And I mean, there will be so many that pop up that are so helpful. Write them down, put them on sticky notes and or put them as your screensaver on your phone and read them when you're struggling. And then reading the Bible helps so much. There was like a study done that people, I can't remember their percentage, but it was a really high percentage that people will literally become so much happier. They'll reduce their alcohol reduction. Um, just from reading the Bible. Um, and it's so mm-hmm. helpful in moments when you're feeling that discomfort, you know, having something else other than alcohol, like Jesus, who is there for you every day. And just another thing that really helps me is like when I'm feeling really scared, just picturing like Jesus next to me holding my hand, like in that moment mm-hmm. and thinking, think about that instead of you know, whatever anxiety you're feeling. And I promise like it will pass. You will get through it. And then another tool I use is like yesterday, I had something I was really nervous for. And instead of focusing on how nervous I was, I was like, okay, anytime. And I noticed the anticipation is always so much worse. Like as you keep going through situations sober, you're going to learn like every time I do that, maybe not every time, but most of the time when you do it, it ends up going way better than you think it will. And so now that I've done so many things sober, every time I get anxious, I'm like, replaying in my head okay you know that went fine like you know the feeling after where you feel on like such a high that you did that sober and it went so well like mm-hmm. I try to focus on that feeling like think of how good I'm gonna feel after and then I pick like a meal to treat myself with so like, I'll be, like I'm gonna have Chick-fil-a or I'm gonna have pizza and I literally envision myself after like in my safe safe spot with my boyfriend on the couch, eating the pizza, cuddling with Maggie. And I just like focus on that moment and how good I'm going to feel after. And it kind of helps you not think about how awful you feel in that moment. Visualization. Visualization, the word I can't ever say. (laughs) (laughs) And and using data, right, of past experiences Mm -hmm. to support. Yeah, all of it. So good. Please tell everybody where they can find you. So they can find me on Instagram at Sober Girl Tribe. 
they can message me if I'm, you're struggling. I try to answer everybody. Um, and we'll we'll put it in the show notes as well. But thank you so much, babe. I just, I love thank following you. you. I'm so glad we got to connect. This is so incredibly special and moving and we're just so grateful for you. So thank you for being here. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was so, so amazing talking to both of you. Thank you for blessing us and our listeners. So, so fun. Thank you guys. Thanks, Kristen. All right. We'll we'll see y'all next week. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. You can find all of our episodes at butjesusdrankwine.com and make sure you follow us over on the gram at Love Life Sober with Christy and Mead at I'm Not Sober, I'm Free. To learn more about what we do, you can visit our websites at meadhollandshirley.com and lovelifesober.com. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it with a friend or two. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. And if you love what we're doing, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps more women who are feeling stuck and alone in the overdrinking cycle to find hope and encouragement. Thanks, ladies. We so appreciate you. We'll see you next week.